Welcome to Ask the Expert. This is a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research. And we're recording this event. We're going to post it on the Sugar Science Site YouTube channel shortly after the presentation. It's also available on Spotify and um, to listen uh, as a podcast. And if you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to enter them in the chat or raise your hand at the end of the presentation. And today we have as our guest, Dr. Mikey Sander, uh, MD at UCSD. She is an expert in pancreatic stem cell biology with over 20 years in this field of research. She earned her MD at the University of Heidelberg in Germany, followed by research at UCSF. And she's currently the director at the UCSD Pediatric Diabetes Research Center. She's an elected member of the American Society of Clinical Investigation and a member of the NIH Beta Cell Biology Consortium and a recipient of the prestigious Grodzki Award from JDRF. So she's quite busy and quite at the top of the field. She's widely published. She's cited with 165 research works with 8,958 citations. People are listening to what she does and her new review is deeply informative of the intersection of genetics and T1D. The review is titled Transcriptional Mechanisms of Pancreatic B-Cell Maturation and Functional Adaptation, which, and it came out in uh, Trends in Endocrinology Metabolism in July 21, so this month. So welcome, uh, Mikey, and um, I am really excited to um, talk with you today and hear what's going on in your lab down at UC San Diego. Uh, a lot of really interesting genetics work um, is coming out of that uh, university. And so I, I, I cannot wait to hear what's, what's going on. Thanks Monica for the invitation. Um, this is a great forum. So what I thought what I'm gonna do um, in the next 10 to 15 minutes is um, comment a little bit um, on what we actually do in the lab and then give you a few vignettes of what we are really most excited about. And I would say what really excites me most about um, research now and also the place that we're at in type one diabetes research is that the research has become highly interdisciplinary. So mm -hmm. we really have embraced that as a lab. So my background is um, in beta cell biology and you know, I've spent sort of the 1990s and 2000s to dissect much of the um, gene regulatory circuits that underlie the formation of pancreatic beta cells. And then really having um, studied that in much depth um, that provided the blueprint for instructing stem cells to make beta cells. So that transition really going from mouse genetic modeling to human iPSCs was sort of a natural one with um, the basis that we, we and you know the entire field had laid really in the 90s, 2000s and um, still ongoing. So in the lab, we um, combine a genetic mouse model still because it is really the hallmark um, physiological model in the end because you, know, you can only really model diabetes in an animal. You can't do it in, in a dish. You, don't, you have the readout still, you know, does that organism actually manifest diabetes? So I think animal modeling still has a huge place in research there. But then, of course, we want human models, so we combine that with this human iPSC model, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in that we have really learned how to make beta cells in the dish. And um, then a huge part of the lab um, is engaged in the sort of right arm of the slide here where we combine genetics and genomics with this human iPSC model 
to really understand the underlying gene regulatory defects that lead to beta cell dysfunction and then also beta cell death in um, type one and also type two diabetes. So on the right side there, I've just highlighted uh, some of the work that we published this year collaboratively with Dr. Kyle Galton's lab, um, who's also here at UC San Diego. So um, Dr. Galton, I think has also spoken in this forum and he has really pioneered many of the, um, much of this research in genetics and genomics yeah. as it relates to the pancreatic beta cell. So we teamed up with the Galton lab to then use our human iPSC modeling ability to really validate the hypotheses that arise from generating these genomic genetic maps. So ultimately um, you wanna also see what's the functional relevance of the genetic hotspots that you um, identify in the genome. And there's a lot of ongoing work where we do this collaboratively. We're also working collaboratively with immunologists to really begin um, intersecting the beta cells with the immune counterpart and using this human iPSC model system to um, begin to model the autoimmune attack on the beta cell in vitro. And much of that work we're doing here um, with Luke Titan, who um, is a type one immunologist at Scripps Research in San Diego. So, you know, as said, much of our research is multidisciplinary. You really can't do things alone anymore. And that is also um, a huge opportunity. And for me as a scientist, this is really probably the most exciting thing about the era we are in because yes. you're constantly learning from others. You're learning about new technologies that other fields develop. And then we as diabetes experts know the questions. So then really think about how you can innovatively apply these technologies to find answers to these questions that we've had for decades, ever since we've known about the disease is the exciting part. So what I wanna focus on today and a few vignettes that I wanna share um, is really our research into building better models to model diabetes using human pluripotent stem cells. So I'm sure others have spoken about this in this forum. So the entire field really building on decades of most genetic research has allowed us to then develop recipes in the dish so that you can instruct human pluripotent stem cells to make um, beta cells and pancreatic islets. So on the right here, I'm showing sort of a stem cell derived islet that we are making um, in the dish. And it really has all the major endocrine cell types. And from that, it actually looks remarkably similar to a primary human islet that I'm showing on the bottom here. But functionally, we still have deficits. So we know we can transplant these islets or stem cell islets into um, mice and that they do mature um, in vivo into functional beta cells and can cure diabetes. And you know, the, you probably all know that there's um, clinical trials ongoing with stem cell derived islets. And that's a very active, exciting field for type one diabetes research. What we are focusing more is on the modeling aspect, really using these stem cell islets to begin to identify mechanisms that lead to diabetes and beta cell demise. And um, Monica has mentioned this review that um, we published just recently in Trends in Endocrinology and Metabolism. And there we really discussed what we understand about human beta cell maturation and the environmental cues that are necessary to mature a beta cell in the first place. And there we raised sort of um, conceptual ideas as to how we might um, apply these principles to then 
really mature these beta cells also in vitro because there is still a missing piece. Yeah. So then um, when we think about these stem cell islets, um, you know, how good are they? What can we model? What can we not model? And that's what I want to share in the next um, five to seven minutes with you. So the stem cell islets that we make, they have all the major cell types. But when you look at a primary human islet, it's not just endocrine cells. You have endothelial cells, you have blood vessels going through. And we all know the islet is highly vascularized because the hormones are released into um, the capillaries and the bloodstream. So each endocrine cell really abuts a blood vessel and the capillary. But we also know that there is cell-cell signaling that occurs between blood vessels um, and endocrine cells that is important for the function of these endocrine cells. So an important piece that we are lacking in the dish is really these blood vessels. And um, we sort of came up with this idea, could we maybe build a stem cell-derived islet where um, this stem cell organoid is not nourished by just sort of floating in a tissue culture dish, but maybe where we could um, build vessels into this organoid so that these um, stem cell derived organoids would actually be nourished by blood vessels through which we could supply um, the nutrients. So having blood vessels in play is not just important for the cell-cell signaling and the overall physiology of the beta cell, it's also an integral part of understanding type 1 diabetes because we know that in type 1 diabetes, the islet becomes infiltrated with immune cells and then T cells that ultimately um, destroy the pancreatic islet. And that normal, a normal islet is actually um, engulfed in like something that we call an extracellular matrix. So it sort of has a capsule and um, all of this, we're really not recapitulating in the culture dish. All these components are important for the immune infiltration because we um, know that the immune cells sort of penetrate um, this extracellular matrix, that blood vessels are an integral part and that Actually, in humans, blood vessels themselves can serve as antigen-presenting cells, so could well participate actually in initiating the autoimmune response. So it all really started with a collaboration that we had with So Chung's lab um, from Korea University, where there was a graduate student there, Yesli um, Jun, who then joined um, my lab as a postdoc um, after she graduated where what Yesel observed in her graduate work was when you um, put these islets, and she did this in red islets, so I should say that in a normal um, tissue culture model, even of primary human islets, these endothelial cells and the blood vessels and also the immune cells, they quickly die. So whenever we have like a human islet model, we're actually modeling things without this important component of the vessels of immune cells because they don't survive in these tissue culture conditions that we develop for islet culture. So what Yesel did in this work is that um, she put these islets um, into these microfluidic devices. So they're like miniature tissue culture chambers where you can now um, not just have a static culture, but you actually apply flow to the tissue culture. So that's really what cells are experiencing in the human body. So it's really more in vivo mimicking conditions. And under these conditions, what Yesel saw is that the endothelial cells, so the blood vessel component, that these cells survived and that also the beta cells functioned better. So that gave us clues that really the flow um, is an important component for beta cell function and as well as endothelial cell survival. So we then undertook this um, 
really endeavor because we've been doing this for six years now to um, figure out how to vascularize these iPSC islets that we can generate in the culture dish. So in order to monitor beta cell health, ultimately in something like this microfluidic device, we needed a real-time readout for beta cell function. And um, we generated this by um, using a calcium reporter. So calcium influx um, leads to insulin secretion. So these calcium reporters can be used as a surrogate um, for insulin secretion. And uh, we introduced that in human iPSC. So that is a real um, strength of this um, ESC iPSC system that you can genetically manipulate it and um, not just test the function of genes, but also introduce these beautiful reporters. What we observed then is that um, this reporter, these iPSC or ESC beta cells, they responded to Xenin 4 with calcium influx, flux with um, potassium, so that those are normal triggers of insulin secretion and calcium influx. But really, the response to high glucose is still relatively flat. So this is still like a deficit that we observe in these um, ESC iPSC beta cells that not um, just our lab has observed, but also others. So there's a landmark paper right now in bioarchives from Timo Otonkowski's lab, and they describe that same sort of lack of calcium response. So there's clearly things we're not doing right in the dish yet. So then we thought the endothelial component of the blood vessels could be one of the important missing components. So Yesel and me in my lab um, really set out on a painstaking kind of journey to identify or culture conditions that really allow um, these iPSC, ESC beta cells and islets to be vascularized. And, you know, for those of you working um, in tissue culture, every cell type has its sort of culture medium and culture composition. So they uh, took a while to identify culture conditions where all these cell types happily coexist and could actually be cultured together. So we can now generate these iPSC um, organoids. So you have in green here the insulin positive beta cells, and then in red, the CD31 positive um, endothelial cells that are budding the beta cells. So the first question we um, asked in this uh, model was really to see, do beta cells function better when blood vessels are present? And this was indeed the case that now we can, in response to high glucose, really see these calcium excursions and spikes, but we only really see it in the cells that abut these endothelial cells. So this is really validating now in a human organoid system what people have observed in mice, that blood vessels are important for beta cell function. So we've teamed up with Chris Hughes lab and they developed this beautiful microfluidic system where yeah. they can actually create living blood vessels. Um, we actually just had um, Hugh Bender the yeah. other day and he was talking about it. It's fascinating. I love yeah. that you're collaborating with them. So yeah, so we have worked together. It's been a really wonderful collaboration now going on to six years where, you know, they have really pioneered just like creating real blood vessels in the microfluidic device where you have an artery and then you really feed the culture, culture tissue, uh, the tissue culture medium through these vessels. Mm. So they're actually non-leaky vessels through your tissue and then you have a venous return just like in the human body. So we thought if we could actually, um, we and, and Hugh and um, Chris, so they have really pioneered this now proceeding primary human islets into this and they're doing studies with that. But we wanted to then take it a step further and um, 
put these stem cell derived islets um, that we already learned how to vascularize in vitro into this device and ask whether now adding this flow through the device and these vessels could further improve the functionality of the beta cells. And that's indeed what we found. So now you really see these nice kind of calcium spikes in response to high glucose. So we're now pretty confident that we actually have um, an organoid that's vascularized that we can put into a microfluidic device and begin to model type one diabetes in an actual vascularized context. So that's really remarkable. That's a remarkable difference from the earlier slide. Yes. So in the last slide, I just want to outline where we're going with that. So now we're actually bringing our immune collaborators into the fold with whom we've already been working because we know that the immune component is very important to the pathogenesis of type 1 diabetes. So we have generated iPSC lines from a well phenotype people with type 1 diabetes. Mm. And we have actually these um, people on recall for blood draws um, here in San Diego. So we can always harvest fresh immune cells from these individuals. So we now can make um, the endothelial cells, the beta cells, and the stromal cells all with a genetic makeup of these people with type 1 diabetes, create these organoids, and then um, begin modeling the immune attack on beta cells in this vascularized context. That is such an amazing project. And I mean, that's so much fun for someone to get in there as a postdoc or a graduate student and start digging into that system. Yeah, it's been a terrific collaboration. And I'm just outlining here the many who have contributed to this work. I think I mentioned the people on the slide, so I'm not going to go through everyone, but I just want to really leave everyone with saying, you know, science is a team sport these days. And um, this has also been generously supported by NIDDK. So we are part of this HERN consortium that actually fosters multidisciplinary research. And that has really funded our efforts to develop these organoids on a chip. So I'm going to stop sharing here and happy to start the discussion. That's, yeah, that is just some fantastic work. Really, really interesting. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it just has the whole idea that you're bringing in the sort of the real clinical situation um, from people who really have type 1 diabetes and are now able to test it in this setting is, I think it's really going to blow the lid off things. I just wondered if anyone here would like to ask a question. I see a few big names in the audience, so that would be fun. Sure, I'll ask a couple of questions. This is amazing work. This is really great, exactly kind of what we needed. And I'm glad that you uh, looked at the uh, blood vessels before you put, like, put a capsule on, because without the blood vessels to perfuse what's inside a capsule, I'm not sure that there's going to be a lot of oxygen in there. So that's probably the right, right order to do things. Um, but uh, um, I was thinking that maybe those endothelial cells are also presenting antigen. You mentioned that they present antigen in the human, and I thought maybe they were presenting antigen in a, a non-inflammatory environment to promote tolerance, because it's certainly true that uh, the body maintains toler- immune tolerance by uh, presenting antigens in a non-threatening environment uh, mm-hmm. cross-presentation. And so mm-hmm. I thought that that was a, an intriguing possibility as well. So thinking of, uh, we always think of two sides of the diabetes coin, one being the side where the immune system is attacking, the autoimmune attack, and the other is the 
active tolerance uh, and so this affects that as well with respect to the peripheral immune cells that you're getting from these uh, type 1 diabetes donors you know our problem has always been not our, we've had two problems in type 1 diabetes research one being of course that the pancreas is not very accessible in the human at all to, for study um, uh, and pods address this partially but still uh, it's a difficult problem but the other is that the, uh, the T cells that are uh, lymphocytes that are doing a lot of the work uh, of attacking the beta cells are, are not present very much in the peripheral blood. So they go to the, uh, they go out of the thymus, they circulate a, a, a little while, and then they go to the target organ or its draining nodes and, and they're just not accessible. So I was wondering, my question to you is sort of how you might address that problem. I know that people have isolated islets in, for example, NPOD and then, and then eluded the the T cells from them. So that might be a, a more interesting sort of, it's very difficult technically to do, um, but it's been done now uh, repeatedly. And so that might be a way to approach it, but you might have other ideas. Yeah, no, so this is really, I think, you know, when you, when you think about now um, using this model to gain insights into type one diabetes, whether it's the effective phase or, you know, even harder to study is what actually initiates it. Um, I think we can, you know, we can of course use pre-existing T cell clones and, and, you know, and use those, but you might actually not learn much about, you know, what kind of um, T cells are actually present. You know, we, we don't really know, um, you know, now that we are actually thinking about transplanting um, iPSC beta cells into people, I think it a really important thing is to also start to think about that memory compartment and what might actually even an autologous graft, right? What might um, attack that autologous graft? And as you say, it's the needle in the haystack. These um, uh, immune cells are, are not abundant. But one thing that we are working on with the Teton lab, so, um, you know, I'm not the immunologist, um, is to really use these um, iPC beta cells now as a bait to maybe reamplify those rare cells so that, you know, your needle in the haystack kind of gets hopefully amplified and we might be able to gain some insights into that memory T cell compartment by actually having the stimulus, the antigen, because it might just be that because in a lot of people with type one, there aren't like many beta cells left. So for that reason, there might not, the beta, the T cells might be so rare just because the stimulus is missing. Have you guys, this, this might be a really, you know, kind of uh, naive question, but what if you, you, you sort of like created that bait, like a patch, you know, with GAD or some kind of autoantibody to the skin of these patients and, and then, you know, maybe lured some of the T cells out of their sort of uh, senescent or quiescent state in, in some of the, in some of the nodes where they're just sort of like sleeping quietly, lured them to the site on the skin and then isolated them from there and grew them up. Is it possible? Or is that just totally out of the realm? <laughs> that, uh, I, I don't know whether that would, you know, I, it's like you need, you need the antigenic stimulus, right? Like, you know, the-, the GAD-65 and some, you know, IA. I don't know. It's just I this is just throwing it out there. I mean Yeah, I mean we don't even know which which T cells, you know, ultimately it's the T cells probably that are the destructive part that you know it would 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 anti-GAD ones be destructive? You know, there's a lot of work yeah. on that in the NOD mouse where people have actually looked, right? Is is you know, you see the autoantibodies, you we know we have um reactive um immune cells against that. 
in people with type one, but which ones are the ones that actually kill the beta cell? Yeah, because some people are saying GAD65 is protective. But yeah, I mean, like if you could, if maybe you could do like just a couple of little patches and see what, see if you could lure them out of the nodes. I mean, that's really far-fetched, but maybe, maybe you could isolate some of the bad guys that way. I don't know. So Bill, what do you think about that? <laughs> I, I think that that might be a little too artifactual. I mean, so what yeah. we really don't want is a, any kind of an artificial or amplified uh, cell that would attack GAD in, in an islet because that great, a great model system, but may not have much um, uh, relevance to, the, right. to to reality. So, I mean, it's a great idea, but I, I think it's probably uh, uh, not the right approach to go. I, I was captivated with what you said, the viruses, um, because, you know, I think a lot of people study, um, this is this is going to be my uh, hand-waving, but that's okay. A lot of people study uh, the reaction of the immune system against the beta cell antigens. And, you know, this has been a focus of a lot of people's thinking. But if you think about what might be triggering and driving diabetes, which has a long, long prodrome, uh, it might be the anti, uh, antiviral response, for example, that, that might yeah. be might be driving that. And there's a couple of things about that, that that you should think about. Number one, if you infect your system with a, with viruses, you can kind of see um, for which viruses the uh, welcome mat it, it, uh, of the beta cell is actually out. I, I noticed when you, when you showed your green fluorescent protein that you got blocks of beta cells that were depolarizing at the same time, mm-hmm. right? And, and they, why, why is that? It's because there's a gap junction protein that actually I there, there's beautiful work on that that looks at the connections and all that yes yeah and you know what the gap junction protein is it's not the named way for the virus it's it's yes it's not it's not named as as a gap junction protein it's named as a coxsackie adenovirus receptor the car right. protein right yeah and so there are there are a set of viruses that use that as a welcome mat to get into the beta cell and this would be a perfect in vitro system to be able to look at that and then you also could look at perhaps again you know, I know that there might be artifacts here, so it may not be completely relevant, but, you know, whether or not these, these viruses can set up shop uh, chronically in the beta cell, which is a, which is a key, you know, prolonged mm-hmm. infection is a key idea. So, I mean, yeah. this is a perfect system to kind of uh, study that. And then the final thing I would say is that, you know, whereas the peripheral immune cells that are reactive to GAD or IA2 or zinc transporter or whatever are probably very in very low precursor frequency in the peripheral blood, it may be true that the that the cells that react against Coxsackie virus or or adenovirus or whatever are are maybe more plentiful in the peripheral blood. So you could probably get those, and I get those from a diabetic because uh, they had the diabetogenic virus presumably earlier. Yeah, so. I mean, what about the COVID people, the patients who went on to present with type one? Would that be a good set of um, blood donors? I don't know that literature well, and I'm not a big fan of that. I'm, no. I actually, you know, I, I don't, I, the, the level of, uh, uh, what is it, ACE2 on the surface of beta cell, it's, it's there, but it's not there in high amounts. Not I think there. the elephant in the room is CAR and Coxsackie and adenovirus. So, uh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, I just wondered because this morning there was a big, um, you know, uh, Camillo um, uh, in University of Florida, Camillo, I forget his last name. Oh Thank you. Recording um, Miami. Yeah, he, yeah. Yes, in Miami. Sorry, he po- he posted this whole thing like forty percent of people with diabetes that you know have have now forty uh, percent of people with COVID now have come down with diabetes. So it was it was a big post, and I was kind of like, hmm, you know, I think it's mostly like type two, but you know, maybe the type ones could provide some information. 
I think right. there's there that's still like a huge gray area and there's a lot of rushed research we've seen over the last year. So yeah, rush for funding. So <laughs> um, but yeah, no, anyway, I'm I'm just throwing these things out there and thank you so much, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Hogopian for uh weighing in and you know, kind of adding the your long lens of um understanding in this field to sort of some of my naive questions. So I appreciate that so much. Um, okay. Yeah, so I wonder if anyone else would like to uh, ask a question. Thanks. I didn't really have a question. I just would say um, I've done a lot of work in the organoids, which I see you're clearly getting into in the right way, and uh, it's impressive. So I would say Thank that you. it's definitely like um, my work has been. Uh, I'm a I'm a CEO of a of a couple of biotech companies based in San Diego, focused in bioprinting. Um, and we've built things like um, uh, NASH models using disease patient cells and incorporating endothelial cells. What we haven't done is go to this next step to have the um, blood vessels better represented. And it's definitely the right place to go, especially in the context that you're discussing where there's some active role of the vasculature. We've tried to take advantage of areas where, um, you know, the sort of passive, uh, passive diffusion, added passive diffusion and the you know signaling uh, role that the endothelial cells play you know adds a lot of value, and so we've seen that. Um, but if you're thinking you know when we think about going into other areas, this is a great example. Um, or if you're trying to model certain aspects of oncology and having a perfused tumor or a perfused vasculature is a much you know is very attractive. And so I think this is exactly the right way to go, and it's impressive. Uh, it's a great next step. Thanks. Yeah. Bioprinting is one thing we've also discussed that we haven't really applied to it, but that could actually also add um, value to it. Yeah. <laughs> and I can I should have a, another conversation offline. <laughs> yeah. And I can comment. I mean, it's, it's kind of um, the right tool for the right job. And what we realized when we built our first 3D liver model is that we'd probably skipped three steps and that spheroids, um, you know, could could have gotten us some things if we had started with that. And now there's more people in the space building, um, you know, the, the cell aggregate spheroids and getting, I think, a, a level of value where the bioprinting will come in more importance is when you need specific structure and getting, you know, getting cells into the right, you know, interactions in space with the right signaling back and forth and the right mechanical signaling. Because when you have a spheroid, um, you know, typically then you're not attached to the plastic. And so the mechanical signaling is also better. Um, you know, I think that all adds up to a lot of value as a first step. And so you're going to get a lot of value. And then if you think you need structure, like in the liver, we needed an interface between uh, hepatocyte and stellate that had to be created. It, you can't just randomly mix them. And so that, you know, that's why we needed structure. Thanks. It's good to know you guys are all down building incredible things in UC San Diego. Um, I think just it's really poised down there to make some big splashes with a lot of the biotech that's coming out of there um, and, and companies that are that are coming out of there. Um, Arkari is one of them and, and others. So thank you again, um, you know, Mikey Sander, Dr. Sander. I really appreciate you speaking with us and entertaining these questions. And we just can't wait to see what comes next with your new systems. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Have a great rest.